Well, thank you very much for being here this morning. We're very appreciative that you're here. I think there's a chance we may have some people who are watching live streaming on the internet or maybe even watching after the fact um, from a, a location I didn't know was watching us sometimes, and that is in Zagreb, Croatia. I was in Zagreb this last week and had a chance to speak at the law school and to give a public lecture and to speak at the Biblitsky Institute. <laughs> and if they're watching, they're laughing at the way I mispronounced and butchered their name. Um, but uh, uh, they've got some really great work for the Lord going on there. I got to meet some of the, the folks there, some of the students. It's a seminary-type school. And uh, one of them said, uh, thank the people in your class for having this class and, and the people who work on the internet team and the camera people and the sound people because this person in one of their classes was taking a class on John and in the very first class day what the instructor did is made him watch a video from our class on the Gospel of John. So thank these people who do all of this work from the camera people to the sound people to the internet teams to the people in the, the booths behind who do the switching. Uh, it's really remarkable. And, and I think bears fruit that we have no idea about. So I'm, I'm thankful to be on the team with you guys and appreciative of you today. Um, we are studying the Apostle Paul, but we're doing it as a legal study. And by that, I'm looking at it in a fresh way for me. I first started studying Paul, I guess, as just a kid growing up. We would read and study Paul and hear sermons and Sunday school classes on it. And then as I got older and I got into school and I was taking a degree in Greek and Hebrew, uh, I would study Paul from a language perspective and read his writings in the Greek and translate them and, and look at him linguistically. And then as I got older, I continued to just look at him from that basis, but kind of looked at him theologically. And I don't know why, but it's taken until my age that I am right now before. It's kind of weird to think I'm going to be 57 this year. And um, life just gets better and better. Uh, and and it's, it's only been this year. That I've said, okay, and, and please understand, I've taught on Paul for, I taught you guys, if you were here, for two years on Paul. And, and, and only now have I thought of this and, and decided how cool would it be to look at Paul as a lawyer. Paul gets arrested in Acts 22 and then ultimately goes to trial where he provides his own defense later on in Acts. But to look at it and say, how would I have handled his defense if I had been retained to be his lawyer? And it gives a new perspective to some of the ideas of Paul and is an interesting way to frame the, the study of Paul. So that's what we're looking at right now. I've got a new client. His name is Paul. It's my criminal case. And here we are. Last week, we talked about the basic events surrounding his arrest. Thanks to our brilliant internet team and camera people and sound people and technical booth people. You can see that on the internet if you want to. But this week, we move with what's the first thing I would do as a lawyer. And this isn't me being a special lawyer. Any lawyer is going to be trained to do this. 
I just say me because this is the way I would do it. So uh, the year would be 57 AD. We've got an awareness of the events, the riot that took place at the temple in Jerusalem that caused Paul to be arrested. What am I going to do? Well, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to sit down with Paul and I'm going to do an initial client intake interview. I want to sit down with Paul. I want to talk to him and I want to interview him and get some basic core information. This is not probably a 30 minute exercise. This might even take days because of the complexity of what I'm dealing with with Paul. But from this, I would be making notes on a legal pad, or actually I tend to do it in a book. I would be making notes in a book, and I would keep on an independent list a to-do sheet. Because I would give assignments out. I'd put down things for Tim Wilson to do for me, where I say, Tim, I need you to go find this person, or go find this out. I'd put down things for different people to do. And so, the initial interview is where we're starting today I won't get through all of it, I don't think, and, and uh, we'll finish it up the week after Easter. Any interview with a client like this, I'd start out and I'd need to get some background information. So we'd start with Paul in that very area. And, and the reason why is if you want to know the road someone's on and you want to know where they're headed, the best way to do it is to look at where they've been. If you see where they've been, you've got an idea on what's influenced them, what they find important, how they make judgments and decisions, what are their characteristics and personality traits that surface high enough to be relevant to how they live, how do they handle crisis, how do they handle stress. As you look at how someone's grown and done all of that from childhood on, it gives you a pretty good perspective of what they've done in the here and now, what they did at the time they were accused, and what they're likely to do as they move forward into the future. So it's very important that we look carefully at how people walk. By the way, especially if you're under the age of 25 or 30, Take note, how you walk, the decisions you make will affect the way you walk the rest of your life. When you're a baby, on the way back from Zagreb, I just happened to have a chance to see our grandbaby in England. (laughs) And no, that could not have been the only reason I took the trip. Um, But she is almost 10 months old. And Yeah, I know. She's adorable. (laughs) And when a baby makes a mistake, the consequences are generally not too bad. She tries to put the blocks one to the other one, and she misses. Well, the consequences aren't that bad. She tries again. She gets it. As we get older... The errors and consequences from our decisions get magnified because our consequences can have bigger repercussions. So just side note, be careful how you live. So I'd look at Paul's background. Now, anytime you look at someone's background, the first thing I'd want to know is what his name is. 
Because if you think about it, you start reading the New Testament, is his name Paul? Or is his name Saul? Is this some fella? Look, we, we always wonder, we always wonder in the trial business, if someone's changed their name, why did they do it? Some people changed their name because they didn't like their other name. Thoroughly legitimate. Some people change their name because it just seems to fit their personality better. Thoroughly legitimate. Some people change their name because they're running from something. I'd like to know what he was running from. Some people change their name because they're ashamed of something. I'd like to know what he was ashamed of. Some people change their name because they've become a different person. I'd like to know what kind of person he was and what caused him to become a different person. When I asked Paul what his name was, I think I know what he would tell me. He would tell me it's both. Paul was a Roman citizen. A Roman citizen was required by law to have three names. So if we go to the Elmo for my, oh, y'all are so far ahead of me. Take a famous Roman. Let's take Gaius Julius Caesar. Now, some people thought his name was Gaius Orange Julius, but it was not. Gaius is the first name. As the first name, it's in Latin, it's called the prinomen. Nomen is name. Julius is the clan name, the clan of the Julii. And that is called his nomen. And then the third name is his common name, the cognomen. Uh, C-O-G. And that's his common name. Paul's common name is Roman common name. We don't know his prinomen or his nomen, but we know his common name. It is Paulus in Latin. In Greek, that would be polos. In Greek, polos. But Paulus in Latin, it means little. Paul was nicknamed Shorty. <laughs> With due respect, Paul. It's not my name. I didn't give it to you. Don't blame me. Meanwhile, Paul is not only a Roman citizen who has the requisite Roman names, but he's also Jewish. And so he has a Jewish name, a Hebrew name. And his Hebrew name, from the verb to ask, is Saul. Or, the way it would be written in Greek, 
Actually, it's spelled two different ways in Greek in the New Testament because it's not a Greek name, so you're just kind of putting it in there. But basically, Saulos in the Greek. So Paul's got both names. And Paul, when he is enveloped in the, in the Jewish community, if we go back to the PowerPoint for a minute, when he's enveloped in the Jewish community, he goes by the name of Saul. His Hebrew name. When that's the locus. Now let's put a map up for a moment. And this is the first century Mediterranean world. You can identify Jerusalem down in the lower right. You can see Turkey, modern Turkey, which is ancient Galatia and other parts. Uh, Bithynia is up there. Uh, Asia is up there. You can see Greece down here. You can see the boot of Italy. You got it? Okay. In the Roman world, Paul would go by his Roman name of Paulus. But when he was dealing in the, wow, that's kind of cool. But when he was dealing in the Jewish world, he generally would go by his Hebrew name, Saul. One of the most common misperceptions about Paul is that he changed his name when he became a Christian, as if he converted and wanted to show he was something new or different. And he escaped his Hebrew name and became a much more gentle uh, Gentile name. That's false. That's not fair to Paul, and it's not fair to what Paul did as he accepted Jesus as Lord. Paul never converted from Judaism. He does not use that word. Paul, the Jew, became a Christian Jew because Christianity was the completion of his Judaism, not a conversion from his Judaism. And that's just one subtle way that that our brains get changed because of... uh, not understanding the background. So, Paul is Saul. They're the same. In fact, if you look at Acts 13, verse 9, you've got a passage where Luke, who is Paul's travel buddy, is writing. And this is when Paul is off, and he's starting his first missionary journey. And so they go to the island of Cyprus, they being Paul and Barnabas. And they set out from there, and look what happens. They get to the isle of Cyprus, and Elimas, a magician, opposed them, seeking to turn the pro-council away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. And from there, Luke continues to call Saul, Paul. Until Paul is giving his history of his conversion at Damascus to the Jews at the temple upon his arrest. And then in giving that history, Paul says, Jesus called him Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So, These are both Paul's names. And uh, we would get that from our initial interview. Now, in addition to Paul's name, 
I want to, I am. I want, I am, is that a, an acceptable way of saying it? I want to eyeball him. I want to look at him. I want to look him up and down. I want to see what he looks like. I want to see, does he look shifty? Does he need a haircut? I've spent a lot of time uh, uh, in Dallas in trial in front of a judge, a federal judge named Ed Kincaid. Judge Kincaid's got a nephew that goes to church here, if you know him, Steve Kincaid. And uh, uh, Judge Kincaid, who, who uh, uh, y'all, you know Judge Kincaid. Well, at least y- your brother is, is a judge one floor from Judge Kincaid. Um, judge Kincaid talks about whenever someone comes in for sentencing. As a federal judge, sometimes he's got to sentence people. And he talks about how many people come in with their sentencing haircut. He says it's just absolutely amazing. They come in with a sentencing haircut. They are clean shaven. And their hair looks absolutely as nice and polite. He says, I hardly ever get anybody coming in with hair down to here if they're a guy for a sentencing haircut. I mean, for a sentencing hearing. (laughs) They get their sentencing haircut. You know, I'd want to look at the client. Now, I can't tell you what Paul looked like. Some people might assume that he must have been some powerful, handsome, winsome fella who through his sheer beauty and and apparent nobility was able to persuade the masses to become believers in Jesus. I mean, if you think about it, the guy had so much success that if you don't realize the success had to come from the Lord, you might think the success might have been from his powerful physical appearance. Not so. We don't know exactly what he looked like, but we've got some indications. Now, I've put up on the PowerPoint here a painting from inside the wall of an out-of-the-way place in the ruins of Ephesus. That's a painting of Paul and Thecla. Paul, of course, the apostle. Thecla, a young lady who decided not to get married in order to spend her life in uh, 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 basically on mission with God in ways she could not have done as a wife. The Acts of Paul and Thecla is a book that we have about Paul and Thecla. It was written at a time where people were alive who knew what Paul looked like, who had interacted with Paul. I'd love to tell you the story is real, but it's not. It was made up. In fact, it was written by an early pastor in a church. And the pastor tried to pass it off as if it was real, thinking that it would help his congregation and other people who read it be more virtuous. And when he confessed to having made it up, he... Uh, he uh, It did not go over well for him. But here's the deal. If you're going to make up a story about someone, and you're going to make it up to people who've seen the person, then you probably ought to describe the person pretty well, pretty accurately, right? If I'm going to make up a story about Pastor David, David Fleming, 
And I'm going to try and convince you the story is real. Am I going to tell you, Pastor David Fleming, he was a short fellow, had flaming red hair, walked with a limp, and was constantly sneezing. He had a little twitch in his cheek. Bald as an eagle. A bald eagle. And I know, I know. Oh, how did he... The judge on the front row, then how did he have red hair? That was before he was bald. See, that's the problem with lying. You got to remember your lie. Rule one. Before his hair fell out, it was flaming red. Then he was bald because God only made a few perfect heads and the rest he had to cover with hair. Um, now, if I'm going to make that story, you're going to sit back and say, that's just, that's just wrong. David's a, 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 a fairly tall fella, not gangly tall. Fairly filled out, got a head full of salted hair. Uh, you know, he's, he doesn't walk with a limp. Uh, he, he's got a strong voice. He's got a forceful personality. He's a leader. You would come up with your own knowledge. Okay, you're with me, right? You're following? My point is this. The Acts of Paul and Thecla describes what Paul looked like. And it was written within the lifetime of people who saw Paul. So I give it some pretty good credibility. Would you like to know what it says? Let me put it up here. A man of middling size, his hair was scanty. His legs were a little crooked and his knees projecting. He had large eyes and a Cro-Magnon eyebrow. His nose was somewhat long. And he was full of grace and mercy. At one time he seemed like a man, at another time he seemed like an angel. Now, if we were to ask Paul to describe himself, he doesn't describe himself as some strong fella. He describes himself as weak. This is not Rambo. This isn't even Brad Pitt. This is much more, did you ever see the movie Prince's Bride? I love that movie. Who was the one that, uh, uh, Fessick, no, not Fessick was Andre the Giant. Who was the one who was the boss of Fessick and Indigo, um, and Inigo Montoya? Who? Oh, y'all, you know, the, the one who tries to outsmart every, everybody, you know. That's what Paul is kind of being described as. Not exactly Mr. Powerhouse. If you look at how Paul describes himself, look at 1 Corinthians 3.2, for example, or 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians 3.2, Paul says, When I came to you, He says, I came to you as one who was weak. Hold on. And then we get to 2 Corinthians 5, not strong and powerful. 
And it was in weakness that I came to you. And then he starts describing the human body in 2 Corinthians 5. As we know if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed. He's talking about the body. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. In this tent we groan and we long to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we're not to be found naked. For while we were still in this tent, we groan being burdened. He says, what is mortal is going to be swallowed up in life. So we're always of good courage. We know while we're home in the body, we're away from the Lord. We walk by faith, not by sight. And he goes on to talk about how from now on, we don't regard anyone according to the flesh by how they look. Even though we looked on Jesus and regarded him as a human, we don't even regard Jesus as a human anymore. And this whole talk he makes about this in the process of it and into chapter 6, he talks about how people have made fun of him as an apostle because he doesn't seem to be stately and strong. And you get the impression that other people have followed him in Corinth and said, well, clearly you should listen to me instead of Paul. Look how God made me. You know, God made him a weakling. I'm strong. Doesn't God equip us? Doesn't that tell you something about how God views Paulus? Shorty? No. Paul's profound effect upon the church was clearly not because of his physical stature or magnetism. God picked the least likely fellow in physical appearance, perhaps, to have this powerful effect. But the appearance is going to be important. Now, I need to know his family history. Let's keep going. So I've looked at him. I've got his name. And now I'm trying to figure out, tell me where you came from, Paul. Give me your family history. We get some of this from a number of passages in Acts. Acts 21.37, 22.3. And some others. Let's look at a few of these and see what they say, and then we'll make a list. Acts 21 37. This is where Paul is speaking to the tribune, and he's about to be uh, brought into the, the jail, the barracks. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he says to the tribune, May I say something to you? And the, the tribune says, Do you know Greek? So we know from this that Paul knows Greek. If we keep reading, he's the, the, the fella, the, the tribune says, aren't you the Egyptian who, who headed up a revolt? And Paul's reply is, no, I'm a Jew. I'm from Tarsus in Cilicia. I'm a citizen of no obscure city. So we get that from Paul. If we continue to look, we see that Paul speaks to the people in the Hebrew language. Might be Aramaic, but it might be Hebrew. The people, when they hear him addressing them in Hebrew, they became even more quiet, which makes me think it was probably ancient Hebrew he's using, which a lot of the people knew. But it was not just the common Aramaic. Paul was pulling out the holy language, the language of the fathers. And he told them, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia. So now we have his birth. 
brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. According to the strict manner of the laws of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. He goes on to talk about it, and he goes on to give more data and more information about him. If you don't have the lesson, you can download it or get on Brent's emailing list. He'll email it to you. I give sites and references for all of the stuff I'm giving you, and I give a little bit more material as well. We know later on from other writings of Paul in Philippians, where Paul's talking about the, the, the right he has to brag if he wants to brag. He says in Philippians chapter 3, I myself have no reason for confidence in the flesh. But if anyone else thinks they have reasons to be confident because of who they are, he says, I got more. And look, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. That means during the captivity, the Babylonian captivity, Paul's people never lost track of their lineage. He could still trace his relatives all the way back to Benjamin. One of the 12 tribes. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee, as to the zeal of persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain he had, he threw it away for the sake of Christ. This is hugely profound. This impressed me as a young man, and it's never stopped impressing me since. Paul truly did give away what most anybody else in his day would have considered the dream life. And he gave it away and counted it as garbage belonging in the dumpster compared to the value of an intimate relationship with Jesus as his Messiah. So we can look through these Acts passages, and here's what you're going to get out of it. He was born a Roman citizen. He was born in Tarsus, Cilicia. He was a citizen of Tarsus, Cilicia. His father was a Pharisee, as was Paul. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's not an only child. We know that because in uh, Acts a little later on, his nephew's going to save his uh, life. His nephew's going to tell him about a conspiracy to ambush him. He's not an only child. He speaks Greek. He speaks Hebrew. He speaks Latin. He speaks Aramaic. His mentor, his teacher in Jerusalem was Gamaliel. His Hebrew lineage was pure. And he might have been a member of the Sanhedrin. And we'll see why on that in a little while as well. Some of these will have to wait till after Easter. But let me tell you what I would do as a lawyer. As I got this family history, I would get to work on the to-do list. My to-do list would be one where I would say, okay, we need to investigate some of these things. I need more knowledge about them. So, for example, I want research done on this issue 
of Tarsus, Cilicia. He keeps saying, I'm from Tarsus of Cilicia. No mean city. Now, mean there is a bad word uh, uh, in the sense that it's not, the, 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 the Greek word is not a mathematic, uh, I mean, is not a, an anger word. He's not saying it's not a city of, filled with mean people. Mean there is the mathematical term, the average. So he says, I was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of Tarsus of Cilicia, not your average run-of-the-mill city. And Tarsus of Cilicia was not. So I would want some research done because Paul says it over and over. If we go back to the map and we add Tarsus of Cilicia, Tarsus is right up there, a coastal town on Galatia. Paul would have been at home as a traveler. He lives on the coast. He lives in a, a, an area where the ships would come back and forth, where the trade was, was prominent. He lived close to Antioch. It's a short sail. So, Tarsus. I want some research done on Tarsus. I need my people to tell me about Tarsus. Tell me about it. Well, historically... That's where Mark Antony met Cleopatra. In fact, Mark Antony loved it there. He gave and built a gymnasium. Um, uh, think stadium. For Tarsus. He built one. In fact, Tarsus was a center of a lot of sporting events. You'll not be surprised then where you read Paul often making metaphor usage out of sports things. Paul's probably a sports fan. Now there are some people who say no, he couldn't have really been because the, the gymnasium, the, the sports events were done uh, naked. And they were. <laughs> they didn't wear anything. But in 21st century America... Uh, uh, we recoil over the idea of that. Back then, that was just the normal. That's just the way it was. And even if Paul, as a good Jew, wasn't allowed to go to the gymnasium to, to participate, he certainly, apparent by his language, was aware of how people run races and all of this kind of stuff. So Antony and Cleopatra was there. Tarsus was an intellectual powerhouse. Tarsus, as an intellectual power, was um, uh, um, a principal exporter of teachers. It was like the teacher college there. And so Tarsus would export teachers for everybody else. Tarsus was considered at the time of more significance philosophically, and as, as a source of philosophers, than Athens was. Athens was like has-beenville. You know, Aristotle and, and Plato and Socrates, they were hundreds of years before. So for Paul, the, the intellectual power, the school of rhetoric and philosophy in Tarsus was huge. That's why when Paul was speaking, he knew how to assume the rhetoric stance. But it's very interesting in light of this to see passages like 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. In 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. Look what you see Paul saying. 
um, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, again, about how he came. And he says, when I came to you, brothers, I, when I came to you, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Lofty speech or wisdom sounds goofy to us, but these are loaded words for Paul. That's what Tarsus was known for. Lofty speech is the Greek word rhetoric. And, and, and there were schools of rhetoric. And Tarsus was famous for exporting rhetoric. Philosophy, wisdom, is philosophy. Philos, friend, sophos, wisdom. A philosopher or a sophist, is a friend of wisdom. Paul says, I didn't come to you as a rhetorician. I didn't come to you as a sophist or a philosopher, which Tarsus is famous for sending out. He says, I came to you with the power of God. It trumps what anybody else is putting out. Now, another thing we would find in our research on Tarsus is to be a citizen of Tarsus costs 500 drachmas per citizen. Let me tell you what a drachma was. You're basically looking at it, 500 drachma. You're looking at about 18 months of wages. What the average person would earn in about 18 months, a year and a half of all of your money to be a citizen. Now, it's really interesting where this comes from. There was a fellow named uh, Dio Chrysostom who wrote, he was alive at the time Paul was alive, at the time Paul's being arrested, all the rest of this stuff. Dio Chrysostom would have been about 17. He's writing a little bit later. And he does a discourse where it's written down one of, actually there are two of them, two speeches he gave to the citizens of Tarsus and the people of Tarsus. And the second one uh, is called uh, the 34th Discourse. Here are a couple of things he says about Tarsus. He says, men of Tarsus, it's come to pass that you are foremost among your people. Not merely because your city is the greatest of all the cities of Cilicia and a metropolis from the start but also because you, beyond all others, gained the friendly support of the second Caesar. That's Augustus Caesar, the Caesar who was Caesar at the time of Christ. That's because there was an effort to overtake this in one of the rebellions against Rome, and Augustus uh, uh, Tarsus had opposed Cassius, who had tried to take it after Julius Caesar. And, and stayed true to the Roman Empire and Augustus and all the rest. And out of that, they get support. Some scholars speculate this is how Paul's ancestors got their Roman citizenship. They supported, and we know that, that Jews in general supported, Caesar and others, uh, Julius Caesar, certainly with banking and things of that nature. Don't know. But, by the way, I can't let this go by. As I get older, I like the way Dio Chrysostom wrote. He uses as an example the human body. The bulk that comes with the passing years. If it 
is in keeping with the rest of the person and natural to it, produces well-being and a desirable stature. Just wanted to read that to my wife so she would understand why I seem to be suffering the bulk that comes with the passing years. Now, uh, happens to be on the same page as his statement about 500 drachmas a man to make you be found worthy of citizenship. By the way, this is really fascinating to read. It also reads about how in Tarsus they hated and made fun of and ostracized people who were linen makers, uh, uh, basically seamstresses in, in a sense, or seamsters. But they did hold in high regard, while they made fun of the linen workers, they did hold in high regard people who uh, were dyers or cobblers or carpenters. And Paul was, uh, in a sense, a cobbler. He was a tent maker. And a cobbler, the word that's translated top cobbler, is a cutter of leather. And so uh, uh, Paul would have worked with leather. So an admirable trade, an admirable profession. But you know what this means? Paul came from a rich family. They were loaded. They didn't need to be Tarsian citizens. They were already Roman citizens by birth. But they became Tarsian citizens, which allowed them to participate in the government of Tarsus. It allowed them to, to, to have power and prestige. And it tells you just from the cost alone that they'd bother to make the son a citizen. They had a little do-re-mi. So, we next know, oh, yeah, we're doing okay. Let's get a Pharisee in here. That Paul was a Pharisee. What do we know about Pharisees? Well, the Pharisees were a powerful sect. We know this, uh, uh, that they were a historical sect. They were powerful. They were one of the main sects. They were powerful at the time of Jesus, powerful at the time of Paul. Historical in the sense that when Jerusalem and Israel were trying to be assumed into the Greek religion in a couple of hundred years before Jesus. There was a revolt of some pure Jews who said, No, we will not give away the temple. We will not give away the religion of our fathers. We will not become Greeks. We will fight for the purity of Judaism. And they fought and they rebelled and they won. And out of that, uh, the, the brightness of the temple and not running out of oil, that's where Hanukkah comes from. It was in the middle of the Old and New Testaments. So anyway, out of that movement, those people so zealous for the law that they would fight for the law became the sect that grew the Pharisees, that became Pharisees. We read about them in the Bible. Sometimes they're antagonistic to Jesus. They're trying to catch him in problems. They're trying to make, make his life miserable. Other times they're not. There are other Pharisees who are real good. Nicodemus was a Pharisee who came to Jesus by night. And if he hadn't, we wouldn't have John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. That's Jesus talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus in John 19 is one of the ones who comes back to Jesus after the crucifixion and helps take care of his body. 
there were Pharisees who were, who were part of the church, the early church. Here's what Josephus said about them. There was a certain sect of men that were Jews who valued themselves highly upon the exact skill they had in the law of their fathers. Made men believe they were highly favored by God. These are the Pharisees by Josephus' definition. People thought, oh, these people are highly respected by God. They're favored by God. They, they, they really value the law. They know their Bible. The Pharisees believed in life after death because they believed in the whole Old Testament. The Sadducees only believed in the first five books of Moses. The Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't even believe there was life after death. You don't get that out of the first five books of the Old Testament. You've got to believe the rest of it. But, oh, did I lose something? There it is. Ah, I've got it appearing and disappearing. We don't have time for it anyway. There's a quote from Josephus about this. The, the uh, Pharisees believed in demons and a hierarchy of demons. It was the Pharisees who said to Jesus, you cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub. And Jesus says, oh, right, like demons casting out demons. That's a real good way to grow your empire. Uh, you know, can a man stand, fight his own house? That's just silly. But Paul, when you read Ephesians, talks about the powers and principalities of darkness. That's a pharisaical belief that there are angels and demons and different levels of them. The, the Pharisees were devout about holiness. They believed that you tithe not just your income. They'd have you tithe your home garden. You go out and you pick ten tomatoes, you got to give one of them away. You go out and you clip ten clips of rosemary, you got to give one of them away. So this is uh, uh, what we have. Uh, this gives us some of the background. I want to pick up after Easter and we're going to talk about Gamaliel. Because there is a lot of information we have about him. An amazing amount. And I'm excited to share that with you. But for now, here are your points for home. First... Paul wrote and said, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's amazing to look at Paul and to see what all he had and what he didn't have. He had a pretty good resume in some regards. In some res regards, his resume stunk. You know how some people put their picture on their resume? I'm not sure Paul would. But he's fluent in a bunch of languages. He's got some good training. He's got some good citizenship. It doesn't matter if you've got the, relation, the, the resume that's huge and impressive or the resume that's not. Whatever resume you've got, you and I can rest assured that God's got our resume and has selected a role for us in his kingdom that's tailored to our gifts and skills. Whatever your gifts and skills are, whatever opportunities you've got, they are not there through chance. And God is not disregarding them. He wants to take us, each one of us, and use our skill set for his purposes. Of course, we have choice in the matter. So what I'm committed to trying to do this week is all of the opportunities I've got this week, 
I'm committed, and I want you to join me in this. Let's be committed together to trying to do those things with an eye towards God. How does God want me to behave? How does God want me to decide? What does God want me to do? How does God want me to treat people? How does God want me to talk? Let's make that decision and let's do it together. Because, point two, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Paul never lost track of the holiness that's emphasized by the Pharisees. That's a good part of Phariseeism if it's not used to make you think you're something special and better than you are, or if it's not used to make you think you deserve God and His love, or you deserve heaven. Paul, in every letter he wrote to any church, always starts out with doctrine, but he always puts in there importance of how you live. Because how we live makes a difference. And holy living is not supposed to be an afterthought it's supposed to be a primary thought for the believer. It's one of the ways we know that God's putting us through using our resume. It's how we know what God wants us to do. We live holy. And last, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. I like this passage because this is like that Berea passage that Dale Hearn quotes all the time. Where's Dale? Dale's over there. What's the Berea passage, Dale? Acts 17 or something? Yeah, he likes the people of Berea because they study. He, I had to wake him up. Um, no, nah, I'm joking. He's sitting there talking. I just can't hear him from here. I'm going to commit to studying. I don't want you to walk out of here and say, I'm going to check Lanier out and check my footnotes and find out I'm wrong. I want you to listen, I want you to pay attention, but I want you to commit to study as well. And let's make sure that we're doing what we can do to up our game as much as we can. Isn't that what we have a chance to do before the Lord that's tremendous? So with that, thank you for being here this morning. I'll miss uh, uh, teaching next Sunday for Easter, but I look forward to being here two weeks from today, God willing. Can I, uh, you stand up and I'm going to give you a blessing after you've stood up. Blessing in the name of the Lord. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, I ask your blessings to rain down upon my friends and those listening. I ask you to touch them with conviction, to comfort those who are hurting, to strengthen those who are weak, to give direction to those who are lost, to give faith to those who are struggling. And to draw all of us closer to you as you reform and conform us to the image of your son. Amen. See you guys in a week.